Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. John Meacham, the Pulitzer Prize winning historian and biographer, has a new 10 episode podcast series called It Was Said that highlights important and powerful speeches from modern American history. Some are famous, some lesser known, and for each, he provides excerpts and context. It's produced by the C13 Original Studio and Cadence 13 in partnership with the History Channel. There's also a new documentary based on Mr. Meacham's 2018 bestseller, The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels, that will debut on HBO on October 27th. Mr. Meacham is the author of American Lion, Andrew Jackson in the White House, Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, and most recently, His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. John Meacham, welcome to our show. Thank you, sir. I, I like being called Mr. Meacham by you. I think, that's, I think that's an improvement. Usually you call me other things, so this is good. I've called you bad names? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, or, or, well, we won't go into the full record. Ooh, uh, ooh. Delighted to be here. Traditionally, historians have communicated by researching and writing books and articles. What's different about presenting your, your ideas through podcasts? It's a really interesting question. I resisted uh, the genre for a long time because I, I thought of it as just sort of, you know, for an hour you talk to your friends uh, and, and make other people listen to it. Uh, and then uh, Chris Corcoran at Cadence 13 uh, came to me with this idea. And I took a flyer on it, honestly, wasn't sure how it would work. Uh, it's, forgive the immodesty, it's, it's had a been really received well um and again it's not my initial idea so i can say that without uh without boastfulness um i think we're so starved for grounded perspective and for suprapartisan not nonpartisan but suprapartisan conversation mm -hmm. about the country that uh, it's just a great uh, it's a great place to it's a great space to be in because you got to, as Jim Baker used to say, you got to hunt where the ducks are. And uh, there are a lot of ducks in podcast land. And so it's it's a storytelling genre that uh, I found to be far more congenial than I expected. The uh, last presidential debate will take place tomorrow night. Has anything memorable come out of the previous ones? Out of debates? Absolutely. Um, we tend to remember them for sort of the highlight moments, right? The Lloyd Benson moment, uh, uh, the Reagan, there you go again, uh, uh, Al Gore sighing too much, uh, often somewhat trivial things that uh, shouldn't be seen as dispositive, but they are a kind of MRI for the habits of heart and mind of the person who's seeking uh, ultimate power in the Republic. And so uh, a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder, of course. Uh, maybe if you're looking for something you have a kind of confirmation bias uh, you know you, you you know what you want and so you see it uh, that's certainly possible but it's the only time we see uh, it's usually three three times or maybe four times where we see the competing 
candidates for the highest office in the same frame. And so it, it I think it's often in it. Let me put it this way. I think it's often inadvertently revealing. Now, what were your criteria here? What do you think makes a great speech? And, and how is hearing a speech different from reading the transcript? Great question. Uh, it, it's entirely different. Uh, and it's one of the reasons technology is a great thing, right? Um, I mean, if we had audio of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe more of us would pay attention to it. Uh, that's possible, right? Uh, it is, it, by the way, for those of us who speak for a living, including uh, present company, it is kind of amazing when you think about the two most, arguably the two most famous speeches in the history of the spoken word uh, are both incredibly brief. Uh, one was the Sermon on the Mount, and the other was the Gettysburg Address, which was 272 mm -hmm. words. Uh, so I always think when I'm doing something, if I go over 272 words, I really better have something uh, good to say. Um, what makes a great speech is the connection between the words spoken and the reaction, uh, either in the moment or long delayed, of the audience. Right? So it helps if you have a live audience? Not a live audience. Well, yeah, I mean, yes. If there's a crowd. Uh, I mean, right well, now we have a president who is stirring up people to say things like Superman, Superman, in uh, talking about him. I don't I don't think it does. It, it certainly makes a difference in terms of are you in the same room? Are you in the same place? When, when I say live audience, I mean a contemporary one, right? Uh -huh. So a televised speech is certainly... Uh, the reaction of the 200,000 people on Wednesday, August 28, 1963, to John Lewis at the March on Washington or Martin Luther King at the March on Washington uh, matters. But what matters more was what people who were watching on television or listening on the radio thought. Because uh, if you were in that 200,000 people at the March on Washington, you probably were already on their side. Uh, so they were speaking really to a, a broader audience. And I think about Robert Kennedy, right, giving an impromptu eulogy for Dr. King in Indianapolis on April 4th, 1968. Uh, and sometimes they're very formal speeches, uh, like uh, President Kennedy's inaugural address or Ronald Reagan's farewell address. But sometimes they're more extemporaneous and therefore potentially more powerful. Uh, that would be Kennedy RFK at, um, in Indianapolis. Uh, yeah. What matters is, and this is true for teaching, it's true for sermons, what matters is the commerce between the speaker and the listener. And does that commerce end up, does that connection, that conveyor belt, to pick your metaphor, does that ultimately produce action? You know, the Greeks use the word rhetoric, and rhetoric now in our vernacular kind of means, oh, that's just rhetorical, as if it's a, you know, you're, you're pushing it to the side. The, the initial meaning of the word rhetoric was the power of argument. Uh, when Aristotle talked about rhetoric, he meant convincing people of to follow a certain course of action being argued by the speaker or the writer. We actually have a little clip of uh, the uh, Robert Kennedy speech, but 
uh, I'm not sure that uh, there's been good, good communication about these things with my audio engineer. So let's hope that when he plays clip two, <laughs> that it's, well, we have three clips. Uh, although there is, the, I was tempted to use a hundred because there are so many interesting things in this series. Um, uh, Reggie, let's hope that clip two is the right one, Robert Kennedy. We can move in that direction as a country, in greater polarization, black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites, filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. Robert Kennedy speaking in Indianapolis. Um, wasn't he heading to uh, a campaign event uh, in Indianapolis that day? Uh, was there a large crowd waiting for him? There was a large crowd. He flew in. Uh, Dr. King was killed just after 6 p.m. Central Time uh, in Memphis on Thursday, April 4th. Kennedy was on his way to the campaign in the Indiana primary, which had become immensely important because just four days earlier, President Johnson had announced that he was going to bow out of the presidential race. So it was the first time that... Uh, uh, Vice President Humphrey, Senator Kennedy, Senator McCarthy, uh, George Wallace, uh, we're all going to be competing in a LBJ-less world. Uh. And uh, John Lewis, uh, the former chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who had uh, lost control of the committee to Stokely Carmichael two years before, had gone into a kind of uh, exile in the wilderness for two years but then had come back into the arena inspired by uh, Robert Kennedy's capacity to uh, translate Dr. King's vision uh, and the broader vision of the movement of the beloved community, uh, the kingdom of God, the, the notion that we would, in fact, love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, that, that ideal was being pursued, uh, in John's view, by Senator Kennedy. Uh, Lewis was on the ground in Indianapolis. Uh, there were a lot of people. It was an inner-city neighborhood. And Kennedy got word of the news from Memphis as he was landing uh, in Indianapolis. There was a two-way car radio. Uh, the police chief of Indianapolis, interestingly, did not want Kennedy to come from the airport to the event. Uh, he thought it would possibly uh, disintegrate into violence and chaos. Uh, John Lewis, veteran of so many intense moments, said, if you have this many people here at such a moment, you have to come. These people are ready to hear uh, what you have to say. Kennedy agreed, uh, arrived. He was wearing his, uh, an overcoat that had belonged to his brother, uh, JFK, and stood up. And what you hear there was genuinely from uh Kennedy's heart and mind. And because it was spontaneous, which made it more effective. Yeah. But he told the crowd that his brother had also been shot by a white man. Could that be said today? Um, In yeah, that way, it could. anyway? 
Sure, it could. I mean, blessedly, uh, broad political violence uh, has become less of a feature in our in our public life, um, in the sense of presidents and and candidates uh, being hurt, um, and so depending on the, the curious and tragic combination of circumstances, you know. It, <laughs> Honesty goes a long way, sure. not least because there's so little of it. Uh, and I think when you speak candidly, people know it, right? That there's a very good, uh, there's kind of a common sense. Again, I use the word commerce. There's, there's a kind of uh, dialectic where people know if, and can sense whether you mean what you're saying. I see this with Vice President Biden all the time. Uh, you know, people are willing to forgive all kinds of uh, performance stumbles and uh, mangled words and that sort of thing, because at, at heart, when he speaks, they believe this is a good guy who's trying to get it right, won't get everything right. And I think there's a kind of intuitive uh, credit that people give when they believe that you actually believe what you're saying. Of course, nobody could have anticipated that two months after he delivered this eulogy for King, Robert Kennedy would himself be assassinated. Uh, exactly. Six weeks, uh, eight weeks later. Uh, yeah. And then eight weeks after that, the Chicago Democratic National Convention descends into chaos. And on Election Day, 1968, Richard Nixon wins by about a point over Humphrey. But to me, the, the big takeaway from the 1968 presidential campaign is something we don't talk about much because most people aren't aware of it. But George Wallace of Alabama, running on a third-party segregationist ticket, got 13.5% of the popular vote and won five states. In 1968. So that means yeah. that 53, 54 percent of the country at the end of that chaotic year voted for either Richard Nixon or George Wallace. You're listening to London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Uh, my guest is John Meacham, whose uh, latest projects include a 10-episode uh, podcast series called It Was Said. And you, uh, it's it. Uh, each new podcast uh, becomes available on Wednesdays, which means today. What are we up to now? Uh, John Lewis at the March on Washington. Uh, now you've written a book about John Lewis, so this is one yep. that probably was uh, was particularly close to your heart. It very much so. And he was the youngest speaker at the march. Uh, he was twenty. He had just turned. He was about twenty three and four months old, five months old. Uh, there was a controversy about the speech. Uh, his initial draft uh, was a little tougher on the Kennedy administration and the white power structure. Uh, the Archbishop of Roman Catholic Archbishop of Washington objected, uh, and the um, the senior leaders of the movement, uh, A. Philip Randolph and Whitney Young and uh, Roy Wilkins and Dr. King and others came to, to John and said, uh, you know, you need to tone this down a bit. If we didn't know what the initial draft said, we would think of the, what he said was 
you know, plenty radical and revolutionary enough. Uh, but one of my favorite details about that day is the administration was so worried about John possibly going too far that they had stationed two people inside the Lincoln Memorial with a button that was going to cut the power to the microphone and shift the sound system to an LP of Mahalia Jackson singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. Uh, So if if he seemed to be being too provocative, uh, the the Kennedy administration was ready to cut, cut the mic. Uh, It's about eight minutes. Uh, I had a great chance to uh, interview Harry Belafonte about this. And, um, Harry Belafonte, who I think is about 93, 94 years old, is still the coolest man in America, by the way. Uh, He's just incredible. Uh, And he volunteered the point that everyone rightly – this is Belafonte speaking. He said everyone rightly remembers Martin's speech that day. But John Lewis delivered what I think of as a kind of Gettysburg address. Uh, It was the most powerful speech I'd ever heard. And what you hear in it is the same urgency, and it has the same resonance of the cries for justice that we're hearing now. And John explicitly said, we don't want to be patient. We want our freedom now. Uh, He was worried about the capacity of the established political order to respond to the demands of the movement, which were not demands for reparation, which were not demands for special treatment, uh, which were not in any way uh, demands for anything other than America living up to and truly embodying what we said at the beginning we wanted to live up to and we wanted to embody, which was the Representative Lewis died this past July. Was his participation in your HBO documentary, The The Soul of America, one of his last public appearances? Well, that interview happened in the fall of 19. So, yes, in that sense, uh, uh, the diagnosis came uh, later in the year. Um, I saw him at the uh, in Selma at the Pettus Bridge. Uh, He gave a short talk uh, on that sacred ground in March. And then, of course, his, he did a town hall meeting, a virtual town hall meeting with President Obama after George Floyd's murder and then made a very brief appearance at Black Lives Matter Plaza in a way linking the current struggle to to the older uh, and more perennial ones. Uh, but he's it, – it's – I don't mean to get – self-referentially emotional here, but um, I believe and argue in in the book you you kindly mentioned that John Robert Lewis was a saint in the classical Christian sense of the term, Uh, that he was willing to die to shed his blood for a vision of justice and equality that would be available and inform and shape the lives of all. And so anything in the last year or so, uh, I think, forms a kind of last testament. Now, the earliest speech in the series is delivered by Edward R. Murrow. What modern day journalist could you even compare him to? 
Well, you know, there are folks who are trying, and I salute that. Um, there are a lot of people who are taking a stand who don't let administration spokespeople or family members get away with uh, rank uh, disinformation and misinformation. Um, it's harder because I think this is what's behind your question. Uh, you know, when Murrow spoke in in 54, March of 54, against uh, McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, it was a much more coherent media universe, right? Uh, there were three he, networks. He did that on uh, See It Now. See It Now, and CBS is See It Now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Walter Cronkite uh, in 68 gives uh, his editorial about Vietnam, you know, that, that that had a discernible impact. Part of it was part of the capacity of those guys to have more of an influence was because there were fewer of them. Uh, in, in the atomized media universe we're in, it's just harder for any single journalist or commentator to claim that much mind share. Well, the Rush Limbaugh does have considerable clout on on the right. Um, now, Murrow used excerpts from McCarthy's own speeches to point out times where he had contradicted himself, a technique that is regularly used today. Um, to what extent did this show contribute to a nationwide backlash against McCarthy? It was late, but it was effective. Uh if you were anti-McCarthy in 1954, you were about four years behind Margaret Chase Smith, uh, the Republican senator from Maine, who in 1950 gave an incredibly important speech called, which is also in that episode, which is called the Declaration of Conscience. And she was a Republican who stood up and said that McCarthy's methods were un-American, were unconstitutional, violated a spirit of fair play and, and the First Amendment. And she only got uh, six co-sponsors for this. And McCarthy dismissively referred to her as Snow White in the Six Dwarves. But the rest of the country caught up. Uh, it took a while. Uh, it's one of the reasons I, I urge people, not urge, but try to explain to people that it takes time uh, for these moments of populist fury uh, to dissipate. Uh, Watergate took a while, right? Uh, McCarthy had a, almost a four-year run in the country um, and was so powerful before the Murrow broadcast and before the censure by the Senate, which was in late 1954, that there were establishment Republicans who worried that McCarthy could run a third-party presidential campaign against Eisenhower in '56 and possibly siphon off a lot of votes from the president. So he was an immense political figure, uh, ruined a lot of lives, uh, did it with crazily effective headline hunting. And it caused, and this is something else resonant in our own time, it caused an enormous amount of uh, self-examination in the, in the press of folks saying uh, just because the United States senator or a president says something, does that mean you have to report it? That is, if it is self-evidently false or can be proven to be false, how do you manage that? And there was a newspaper publisher out in, in Denver, Palmer Hoyt, who kind of led the way 
saying, you know, just because Joe McCarthy says George Marshall is a communist does not mean that my newspapers have to say Joe McCarthy says George Marshall is a communist. If it's if it's totally false, how do we assess that? How do we report it without simply passing along a false charge? And I think, as you know, you know, we've seen that in the age of Trump now for going on five years, that struggle. Now, we talked about Robert Kennedy's eulogy. Uh, their uh, eulogies seem to have had a particularly uh, powerful impact. Uh, and you have a number here. Following the massacre of a Bible study group by a white supremacist in Charleston in 2015, um, did President Obama immediately know that he was going to deliver the eulogy? Uh, not immediately, uh, but uh, it was for Clementa Pink- Pinkney, who was a state senator and and, and uh, the pastor there uh, at of the Emmanuel, Emmanuel AME Church, uh, church historic yeah. church, uh, black church in, in, in Charleston. And he worked on it for three days, I think. Um, wow. And the way Obama dealt with speeches was, uh, you know, his, his team would often give him a at least the, an outline of, you know, a frame, and then he would work uh, uh, quite closely on it. And nobody knew uh, that he was going to break into song uh, when he started to sing Amazing Grace. Did he even know? Was that spontaneous? Uh, he had thought, uh, he had thought, you know, I'm waiting for his memoir. <laughs> I would just uh, out of my, one of the things, actually, parenthetically, but, but I think interestingly, um, when you're talking about the story of modern America, June 25th, 2015, is a really interesting day. That day began with the Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage, marriage equality. And so Obama speaks of that, welcomes the decision in the Rose Garden, and then gets on a plane and goes to Charleston. And so you, you see this arc of, of hopefully what we're becoming, uh, but the forces that also try to hold us back in that same day. Now, the singing uh, got the most attention, uh, although he does drift out of key every once in a while. Uh, but we have, <laughs> we decided to, to, to play a little clip from uh, a different Obama speech uh, to give a sense of just how uh, well he delivered his speech. Maybe we can listen to a bit of that. Removing the flag from this state's capital would not be an act of political correctness. It would not be an insult to the valor of Confederate soldiers. It would simply be an acknowledgement that the cause for which they fought, the cause of slavery was wrong. Yeah, well, he knew how to work a crowd. Yeah, <laughs> uh, always. Um, it's a fascinating speech uh, because, as you say, it's a eulogy for a man. It's also a hopeful vision of what we should be and an honest accounting of what we've been. 
And he did the same thing with John Lewis uh, at Ebenezer uh, in July. And, you know, one of the things about eulogy is to commemorate a life, presumably well-lived, but also, I think, to articulate the lessons of that life that can be applicable to us so that when our time comes and someone is speaking of us, they can say that we heeded those lessons and left the world a little bit better place. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm sure you recognize that music. Can you Always. hear me, John? Yeah, I got you. You you recognize that music? Always. <laughs> That's your the theme to your the podcast. That's right. So well, let's talk a bit about this podcast again. It, it's called "It Was Said," uh, presented by. Uh, C13 Original Studio and Cadence 13 in partnership with the History Channel. New episodes every Wednesday, and you can download them free? Yes, wherever you get your podcast, yep. And my guest is John Meacham, who is the winner of a Pulitzer Prize for his book, American Lion, Andrew Jackson in the White House. Also, Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. And His Truth is Marching on, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. It's interesting that uh, that Andrew Jackson uh, is one of President Trump's favorite presidents, if not yeah. his favorite. Yeah, I think he sometimes get some confused with Stonewall, but yeah, um, <laughs> you know, there's a, um, yes. I mean, I, I, I'm ambivalent as you might imagine about, about the comparison, uh, where it breaks down pretty fundamentally, I think is that Andrew John, Andrew Jackson, for all of his, uh, uh, sins and, and derelictions by the time he became president was conversant with and respectful of the broad constitutional order. Uh, he'd been a lawyer, a judge, the first congressman from Tennessee. He'd been a senator twice, uh, general. He had um, accepted the result of the constitutional process, uh, despite the fact that he had won the popular vote in, uh, in 1824. Uh, the race went, to the campaign went to the House. Uh, Henry Clay helped John Quincy Adams uh, win the presidency. Clay became Secretary of State, which in those days was sort of the way you became president. Uh, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, uh, and Adams had all been uh, uh, secretaries of state uh, before they became president. Uh, and Jackson denounced the result, but he accepted it and went home to Nashville and 
decided that his vengeance would come not in an extra legal way, but uh, by running in the next campaign. And there was there was a, a, a respect for that process that I don't think the incumbent shares. Now, in the past, you've uh, striven to be nonpartisan, but this year you did uh, speak at the Democratic National Convention and you've endorsed Joe Biden, the first, I guess, the first candidate you have uh, endorsed. But uh, can you talk a bit about your personal relationship with President George H.W. Bush? Sure. Um, I miss him all the time. Uh, I was You collaborated with him while you were writing his uh, his official biography. I, I, he was immensely cooperative. Uh, he threw open the doors. Uh, he gave me his presidential diary, uh, answered any question I asked. Uh, I read Mrs. Bush's diary, which she kept from 1948 forward. Uh, there were no strings attached. Uh, there was no right of review. Uh, it's often called the official biography or authorized. That's actually not right. Uh, he cooperated, but, uh, I only did it because uh, I could call them as I as I saw them. Uh, I spent 17 years uh, wow. before I published with him, uh, off and on. And part of the reason for that is, you know, unlike journalism, history takes a while uh, to to figure out uh, what mattered, what didn't. Uh, sometimes journalism is exactly right, and uh, the view of the contemporary era is spot on. And sometimes it isn't. Uh, this happened to Harry Truman. Uh, it happened to Dwight Eisenhower. It happened to George H.W. Bush, uh, where they were uh, seen in a uh, darker light in real time. But in retrospect, uh, historians have, by and large, come to see that things they did that produced controversy and unpopularity in real time were ultimately good for the country. And my fundamental view of President Bush Sr. is he did things in the uh, race and the search for power that were not admirable. But what mattered ultimately to him was less the means of obtaining power than the ends to which he used it. Uh, that's what mattered to him. And both in economic decisions and decisions of foreign policy, he was willing to do things that he believed to be in the national interest and that he knew to be, knew to be, uh, to his political detriment. And I think that's, I think that's fundamentally admirable. And we've talked about uh, eulogies uh, that others have delivered. You delivered eulogies for both George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush uh, when they died in 2018. Uh, did Why did you choose to share the words of your speech with President Bush before he died? I always, I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've often been at funerals where I thought, you know, the person who would have loved that is the person who's dead. <laughs> I mean, if, if only they could have heard this. Um, and so I, it, it's funny, I asked both President Bush and Mrs. Bush if they wanted me to read them or if they wanted to read what I had written. Mrs. Bush, wonderfully, as only she could do, she said, no, but I'll be listening. So I, I, I'm, I'm t 
terrified uh, that she was up there with her knitting needles waiting for me. <laughs> uh, uh, President Bush uh, was intro- wanted to hear it, and uh, his reaction was classic. At the end of it, he said, that's beautiful, but you know, awful lot about me. I was like, well, yes, sir. This is your this is your last shot. You know, this is this is the headline. Uh, I I thought I'm a big believer, uh, and I don't know if this it's, this is not widely not particularly widespread. Uh, I think in in in, in my world uh, of what I do, but I believe that you should be willing to tell people what you're going to write or what you think about them. Uh, that if you're not going to, if you don't have the guts to say to a subject, I think you were wrong about X, Y, and Z, and this is what I'm going to say, you know, if somehow or another you, you think that writing it is, you know, safer as opposed to saying it, and I, I that's has always felt wrong to me. Uh, Did he so, uh, ask wanted, you to change anything? To oh, God, no. No, no, no. Uh, well, it's interesting that, uh, well, I was wondering whether this experience in delivering the, these eulogies inspired you to produce this podcast, although you haven't included the ones you've delivered into the series. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I, I'm I'm plenty solipsistic, but not that solipsistic. Uh, no, I um, and I debated a little bit. Um, I also debated it with the the speech, you, the little talk you mentioned that I did at the the Democrats uh, mm-hmm. this summer. I debated, you know, is this the appropriate role for a biographer? You know, are we supposed to pretend we're neutral? Um, and ultimately decided that uh, it was more important to me uh, in my private capacity as a citizen than an observer. I don't mean to sound grand about it, uh, but I've been very lucky, uh, incredibly fortunate in my both professional and personal lives to be able to get to know a lot of these folks. And I uh, was honored, frankly, by their request. And sure. I said what I thought. And as I've gotten older, I don't know if you've had this experience, you know, I, my basic view now is look, this is my opinion. Uh, this is what I've chosen to do. You can take it or leave it. Right. Um, and, so I, um, the Democratic thing was a little, a little more interesting in that in that zone. But Biden, Vice President Biden, called me. He said, uh, and this is another. This might be of interest. Um, he said, uh, you know, would you do five minutes? Of, and I want you to define the soul of America, but do it quickly. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, and my only condition was that there be no conditions. And so they never asked me to mention Biden. They didn't ask me to say a particular thing. Um, it was, you know, I, I had intellectual and rhetorical freedom. Um, and so I, I chose to say what I said. Uh, and again, I think as long as it's authentic, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in a battle here for really fundamental things free expression, uh, the capacity of reason in our public life, uh, a, an observance of a constitutional order that for all of its failings has uh, managed to produce more liberty for more people. And 
you know, we are facing a kind of creeping authoritarianism. Hmm. And my all around the world, in fact. Yeah. And again, I don't mean to sound grand, but since you ask, um, look, I was born in 1969. Uh, I'm a white Southern male Episcopalian. Uh, things tend to work out for me in this country. I don't know where I would have been if I'd been born in 1949 on the really the fundamental or 39 on the fundamental questions that confronted my native region and the country more broadly. I like to think I would have been with King and Lewis and Parks, but I don't know that. What I do know, though, is that in this struggle that's unfolding as we speak between the forces of reasonless, irrational authoritarian instincts and a basic kind of American decency, at least I know what side I'm on here. And if I'm asked to plant my flag, I'll plant it. John Meacham is my guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You can also find podcasts of this conversation if you want to hear it again. Uh, you uh, included Ronald Reagan's farewell address from the Oval Office in 1989 as one of the podcast episodes. How do you think it compares with memorable presidential farewells, farewell speeches like Washington's and Eisenhower's, the ones that are usually cited? I think it's in that company, right? I think there are only three that you really remember. Uh, people really only remember two, if they remember any at all. Um, Washington's because of the warning about uh, the, the baneful effects of party mm -hmm. spirit, a warning against reflexive partisanship. And uh, entangling alliances. Right. And Eisenhower's uh, warning about the military-industrial complex. Um, mm -hmm. And I would defy anybody else to come up with anything they remember from a from a farewell address. Uh, Reagan's is different. Uh, it's a really good speech. I've always liked it. Um, but I must say it has grown, as we were saying about, this is what history does sometimes. In this climate that we've been in a, with the Republican Party since 2015, it is almost scriptural because it's a speech where a Republican president describing a shining city upon a hill, an image borrowed from John Winthrop, who borrowed it from Jesus, uh, although it was Reagan, by the way, who in, in introduced the word shining. Uh, both Jesus and John Winthrop just said city upon a hill. Reagan, with that he wonderful said, vi visual imagination, added shining. I, he by said the way, it, it was a city. He said it was a city where, I'm quoting, if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and where the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here seems that was 1989 it seems like a long time uh, since a republican president could could talk like that well and, and to continue that paragraph he said i'm slightly paraphrasing but only slightly that we had um it had to be a beacon for all the pilgrims mm -hmm. from all the lost places who are hurtling through the darkness toward home or hurtling through the darkness toward home all the pilgrims it's about pilgrims not he wasn't putting folks in cages he wasn't separating children at the border. He was talking about an America that would welcome the stranger and would offer hospitality to the uh, persecuted. And that was only 30 years ago. 
and so I very much wanted to hang a lantern on that speech to remind my Republican friends, and I have I have a lot, that this is not the party of Reagan and Bush and Bush and McCain and Romney. And we can argue the rest of the day about the failings of all of those men and, and, and what they did that might have, you know, people think it created the climate for Trump. And again, we could argue about that. But my basic view is that one way to think about American politics in the last 80 years or so is that it was shaped by a figurative conversation and tension between Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. And there were two central questions that confronted us from generation to generation. One was the relative role of the state in the marketplace. The other was the relative projection of force against commonly agreed upon foes and rivals. And we went to the 20-yard line sometimes one way, and we went to the closer to the 20 on the other, but we were on the same field. This particular era is not, in my opinion, a sequential chapter in that story. Now, you mentioned earlier that a number of the uh, speeches are connected with the civil rights movement. Uh, and uh, there were some pretty great orators uh, at the time, perhaps uh, influenced by the rhythms and cadences of, of, uh, of, liter- you know, of, of ministers. Uh, let's listen to probably the most famous of them all, a little bit from Martin Luther King Jr. Of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read. Of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read. Of the freedom of press, somewhere I read. That the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Pretty powerful. Mm. But a lot of his speeches had that kind of stirring uh, feeling to them. Part of King's genius rhetorically was he married the preacherly cadences of the black church, not only with its scriptural foundation, which he brought to the public arena, but he also in some ways managed to turn the secular language of America into holy language. Right? He, he, in a way, he ordained, uh, he blessed the Declaration. What he was doing right there was the Constitution, right? He was using the First Amendment as mm. scripture. Somewhere I read, somewhere I read, where, where he read it was in the First Amendment. Mm. And so the capacity to take two tributaries, one of scripture, one of secular rights and responsibilities, and to form this amazing river of rhetoric was one of his great uh, legacies to us. Unfortunately, we've pretty much run out of time, so I couldn't uh, get into Megan McCain's provocative eulogy at the funeral of her father, Senator John McCain. But that's another very powerful sequence in this series. It's called I Was Said. Uh, 
from C13 Originals and uh, Cadence 13 in partnership with the History Channel. There's also that new documentary that's going to be on uh, HBO on the 27th, The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels, which deals with the civil rights movement. Uh, women's suffrage, McCarthy, the things we've been mm. talking about. It. It's mo moments of crisis that we managed to overcome. So you've been very busy. Uh, not resting on your laurels as a Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, are, <laughs> are, are you uh, are you working on a second podcast series, or are you writing another book? Uh, always writing a book. Uh, got a couple of things going uh, about American, couple of American presidents trying to decide which one to to privilege, um, and we're hoping to do a, a different se another season of the of, of it was said. Uh, you know, I think it's all hands on deck right now. Uh, I think we're, you know, America at its best is an Enlightenment era project. And a key inside of the Enlightenment was that our capacity for reason, our capacity to think, our capacity to disagree uh, and to change our minds when contrary evidence presents itself, that's under assault right now. And so those of us who are lucky enough to be able to uh, make a living talking about these things, I think have a, a particular obligation to uh, offer as much uh, as much as we can for people to, to act on. In our last minute, uh, just one more question. Donald Trump is generally considered a poor speaker, and yet uh, he really can stir up a crowd. What do you think uh, he does? So uh, is it that the crowd is just primed or uh, does he actually wind up giving memorable speeches for the people who he's addressing? It's an elemental relationship, <clears throat> and it's something that we'll study forever. Uh, Huey Long had this. Um, uh, George Wallace could do it. He said part of his appeal is he says things that other people might think but would feel um, – constrained to say. And so part of the reason he's where he is, is that people hear in him coming out of his mouth, mm. views of the world, opinions about the world that they don't think they should voice. And but they're happy that he's voicing it for them. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We have to leave it there. But John Meacham, it's been a great, great pleasure having you on our show today. Always fun. Thanks, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman, who prepared today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLocatedLarge.com. If you want to comment on any of our shows or if you'd just like to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a few minutes to ask for your support for this station. We are asking all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now 
to keep the unique, in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We need your help to get back on our feet because this pandemic has compromised our funding as it has for so many independent media sources. So if you listen regularly to Leonard Lopate at large, or even if you've just discovered our in-depth one-hour interviews on subjects we hope you'll find engaging, why not step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. They're listeners who contribute $10, $15, $20, uh, whatever they're comfortable with, or even more a month to keep the station running um, and to show their support for what we do on this show. Uh, whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you do so right now to play a role in keeping this crazy experimented 100% listener-supported free speech radio alive and well. We don't take uh, grant money. We don't take advertising like other public stations do. We rely 100% on our listeners. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And a big thanks to all of you who've already stepped up to support this show and this station. Uh, you know, the, the kind of one hour uninterrupted uh, interviews that we have here may seem uh, the obvious choice while you're listening to them. But the fact is that our long form interviews on one topic. Um, are really very rare in broadcasting and um, and they're only possible because of our unique funding model. Uh, and by unique, I mean 100% listener sponsored. We can't do it without you. So one last time, the number to call 516-620-3602. We can go online to give to WBAI.org. And please make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large so we can keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m on WBAI. And to everyone who's already stepped up to support this program, we thank you very much. And we hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when the legendary activist and former ACLU executive director, Ira Glasser, and documentary filmmaker, Nico Perino, will discuss their new documentary called Mighty Ira. See you then, but reminder, one more time, please call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org and support the station.